Welcome to Season 5 of Truth and Justice. We're going to begin with a message from your host, Bob Ruff. The West Memphis Three is a case that over two decades has gained international attention. The case has been picked over and analyzed by literally millions of people. Many of you listening right now already have your own theories and perceptions of this case. Most of this knowledge was gained through documentaries. The timeline that you're about to hear is based solely on facts, police reports, witness statements, trial testimonies, and affidavits. In future episodes, we will break down each and every one of these claims on their individual merits. However, in this episode, you're about to hear the timeline of events from West Memphis, Arkansas on May 5th, 1993, as we have interpreted them after months of research and witness interviews. At 2.55 p.m. on May 5, 1993, the final bell rang at Weaver Elementary School. Weaver Elementary is located in the heart of a small middle-class neighborhood in the town of West Memphis. West Memphis has been described as a small town, but that's not exactly accurate. I would describe it as a small city. In 1993, the population of West Memphis was somewhere between 25 and 30,000 people. The neighborhood where the events in question occurred is about a three-quarter mile square. Quiet residential streets and concentric circles surrounding Weaver Elementary. The neighborhood is bordered on the south by a narrow bayou. Along the west side is Macaulay Street, and less than three-fourths of a mile away on the east side is Ingram Street. The north end of the neighborhood is bordered by a small forest known to the locals as Robin Hood Hills. And the Robin Hood Hills woods is bordered to the north by the 10-mile bayou. A small, quiet, residential neighborhood. The streets are lined with modest two- and three-bedroom homes from one end to the other. Back in 1993, and even today, you're not likely to drive these streets without crossing paths with dozens of children walking and riding bikes. 
and on May 5th of 1993, little eight-year-old Stevie Branch was one of these children. Stevie Branch was a second grader at Weaver Elementary School. At 2.55 p.m. on this warm spring day, his mother, Pam Hobbs, picked him up from school and drove him home to 1601 South Macaulay. Stevie lived at home with his mom, Pam, and his stepfather, Terry Hobbs. Terry worked for an ice cream company, and his mom was a waitress at a local restaurant known as Catfish Island. Stevie had a four-year-old half-sister named Amanda who also lived in the house, along with a dog named King and a pet turtle. The Hobbs household was located on the very south end of the neighborhood. Their backyard butted up to the bayou that I mentioned earlier. Stevie was obsessed with the Ninja Turtles, as many kids were back in 1993. He was an honor student and a Cub Scout, and he had recently earned his Wolf Badge. Stevie stood out in a crowd, mostly because of his bright blonde hair that he kept spiked. When Pam Hobbs picked her son up that afternoon, he was wearing blue jeans and a white t-shirt. They made the short, less than five-minute drive home, and Stevie got ready to settle in and watch TV. But he wasn't home long before he got a visitor, one of his best friends, Michael Moore. Michael was a classmate of Stevie's at Weaver Elementary, and he was also eight years old. He, however, didn't need a ride home from school. He lived at 1398 East Barton Street. His house sat right next door to the school, so he would just walk home when the bell rang. Michael lived with his parents, Dana and Todd Moore, and his nine-year-old sister, Dawn. His buddy Stevie had a bit of a crush on Dawn. Not long before this day, Stevie had even bought a birthstone necklace for Dawn. In his mind... Dawn was his girlfriend. Michael, like Stevie, was also a Cub Scout, but Michael lived for the Scouts. He wore his Cub Scout uniform as often as his parents would allow it. In fact, Michael was wearing his full Cub Scout uniform, complete with scarf and hat, on the afternoon when he asked his mother if he could go ride bikes with Stevie. Dana Moore told her son that he could, but to be back home when the streetlights came on. Back in the early 90s, the dust till dawn sensors on the streetlights were just as good as any watch or clock. Michael made the quarter-mile trip on his bike to Stevie's in just a few minutes. Stevie, no doubt, had been telling Michael all about his new bike at school that day. About two weeks prior, his grandfather had gifted him a new ride, and Stevie was ready to go exploring with it. At this point, it's around 3.30 in the afternoon. Stevie asks his mom if he could go riding with Michael, and she agrees. However, she's a bit more restrictive than Michael's mother. Pam Hobbs had to leave for work at 5 o'clock. She told Stevie to make sure he would be home by then so that he could ride along with his stepdad Terry and his sister Amanda to drop her off. Stevie promises to be home in time, and he and Michael sped away. There's a third member to this trio. His name is Christopher Byers. Christopher lived right across the street from Michael Moore, about 100 yards away from Weaver Elementary School, where he was also a second grader. 
At eight years old, he lived with his mother, Melissa Byers, and his adoptive father, John Mark Byers. John Mark, known by most as Mark, adopted little Christopher when he was just two years old and had been in his life since he was just a baby. For all intents and purposes, Mark was Christopher's dad. Also living in the house was Christopher's 13-year-old half-brother, Ryan. Christopher, by all accounts, was a sweet kid, but a bit hyperactive. His mother, Melissa, once said that the family nickname for Christopher was Worm because he, quote, squirmed so much. She described Christopher as a typical eight-year-old boy. He still believed in Santa Claus and the Easter Bunny, and he was afraid of the dark. According to Mark, Chris also wanted to join the Cub Scouts with Stevie and Michael, but being a bit scatterbrained, he would always bring the sign-up form home from school the day after the sign-ups. On May 5, 1993, Christopher was wearing blue jeans and a white long-sleeve shirt, and he was supposed to go home right after school. This period of time, that hour after school let out for the day, is where the mystery of the West Memphis Three begins. To this date, Christopher Byers' whereabouts in the first hour after school let out on May 5, 1993, are still unknown. Chris had been instructed to go straight home after school and wait for his older brother Ryan to get home to let him in. Christopher didn't have a key to the house. By four in the afternoon, over an hour after school let out, Chris's dad Mark and his brother Ryan had to leave to go run an errand. At the time they left, they still didn't know where Chris was. They had been looking around the neighborhood with no sign of him. But shortly after four o'clock, Christopher finally appears. But not at his home, Chris shows up at his friend Stevie Branch's house to ask if they could play. Stevie's mom, Pam, explains to Chris that she had just missed Michael and Stevie, that they had left on their bikes. At the time, Stevie's little sister, Amanda, was sitting inside watching Muppet Babies, which happened to be Christopher's favorite show. Chris asked if he could come inside, and Pam allowed it, and for about 15 minutes, until the show ended... Chris sat in the Hobbs living room with Amanda watching TV. When Muppet Babies ended, Chris left and headed for home. During this 90-minute period of time, from 4 p.m. to 5.30 p.m., the whereabouts of Stevie Branch and Michael Moore are unknown. Through all the police statements, all the affidavits, all of the trial testimony, no one reports to have seen either of the two boys during this period of time. Christopher, on the other hand, left a trail of breadcrumbs. He'd apparently left the Hobbses and went straight back to his house. But since his dad and brother had already left, he had no way to get inside. Christopher, being as energetic and intuitive as he was, pulled a ladder up to their kitchen window and tried to push it open to break into the house. But all he managed to do was break the seal on the window. There was a microwave cabinet just inside that kept the window from opening. 
It appears that Christopher was unfazed by this. Because a little while later, at about 5.20 p.m., his dad Mark came pulling back into the driveway along with his mom Melissa. After dropping Ryan off for an appointment at the courthouse, Mark swung by and picked Melissa up from work. As they approach the house, Mark first notices the ladder and the broken window. And after a quick look around, he finally finds Christopher. Christopher had found a skateboard and was riding it on his belly right down the middle of 14th Street. He wasn't paying any attention to traffic or anything else going around him for that matter. Mark yells at Chris and tells him to get out of the street and get back to the house. Chris complies and when he gets home, of course, he's in trouble. At this point, his list of offenses has already started to grow. He didn't come home from school when he was supposed to. He disappeared for over an hour. He tried to break into the house and in fact broke a window. And he was recklessly and dangerously riding a skateboard in the middle of the street. Christopher's mom had already gone into the house, and Mark was left to hand out the punishment for Chris's offenses. Christopher received a spanking, and then was told to spend the rest of the afternoon cleaning out underneath their carport, which Christopher began to do as Mark left to go back and pick Ryan up at the courthouse. For a few minutes, between 5.30 and 5.45, Melissa Byers is inside the house talking on the phone to her boss, and here's Christopher coming in and out of the house a few times, which she assumes he's either getting something to eat or drink. At one point, she says she heard him run upstairs to his bedroom. Meanwhile, about the same time, right around 5.30, Michael and Stevie finally reappear. 19-year-old Deborah Odinger, who lives at 1309 Goodwin, that's up on the north end of the neighborhood, right across the street from the area known as Robin Hood Hills, sees Michael and Stevie crossing her yard on their bikes. About that same time, a woman named Kim Wilson sees Stevie and Michael heading into Robin Hood Hills. And about that same time, 15-year-old Ben Crafton also saw Stevie and Michael. He saw them heading north on Wilson towards Goodwin, which again would be towards the Robin Hood Hills area. the same time that Stevie and Michael were out exploring in the north end of town by Robin Hood Hills on their bikes, Christopher took off and headed west from the buyer's home. Somewhere between 5.45 and 6 p.m., Chris stopped by his friend Bobby Posey's house. Bobby lived just a couple blocks away to the west. Christopher tells Bobby that his daddy had whipped him and that he was running away. About that same time, 10-year-old Alan Bailey Jr. says that Michael and Stevie stopped by his house and told him that they were going to go pick up Christopher. And it appears that that is exactly what they did. 6 p.m. on the night of May 5, 1993, is the first time that all three, Stevie, Michael, and Christopher, were ever seen together. the very first sighting of all three boys, Stevie, Michael, and Christopher together, was by Michael's mother, Dana Moore. She says that around 6 p.m., she walked outside 
and saw all three boys heading north on 14th Street. Michael Moore was on his bike, Stevie Branch was on his, and Christopher was riding on the back of Stevie's. She saw them speeding off, heading north towards the Robin Hood Hills area. But as it turns out, Robin Hood Hills wasn't their destination. Shortly after Dana saw the boys, she sent her daughter Dawn up the street to look for them. Dawn made it up to the Robin Hood woods, and the boys were nowhere to be found. Shortly after Michael's mom had seen them, a 13-year-old girl now named Jamie Clark Ballard looked out the picture window at the back of her house. She lived at 1609 South Macaulay Street, about three doors down from Stevie Branch's house. Much like the Hobbs residence, Jamie's backyard also butted up to the bayou on the south end of the neighborhood. She and her mother had looked into the backyard and saw all three boys, Michael, Christopher, and Stevie, playing in their backyard. They were playing down by the bayou and riding their bikes near the ditch. At this point, Stevie is over an hour late. Remember, he was supposed to be home by 5 o'clock so that he could ride with his stepdad, Terry, and his sister, Amanda, to drive his mom to work. While we don't know where Stevie or Michael were between the hours of 4 and 5.30, what we do know is that they weren't home because Stevie's stepdad, Terry, had to take his mom to work without him. And now, here they are, an hour later, playing in the backyard of Jamie Clark Ballard. The backyards of all the houses on South Macaulay are connected. There's no fence separating one from the other. So it was a clear shot to the backyard of the Hobbs household, Stevie's house, and the back of Jamie Clark Ballard's house. Jamie and her sister Brandy and her mother Deborah went about their business getting ready for their evening activities as the boys played. At 6.30 p.m., Jamie and her sister Brandy had to leave to go to their church youth group. Every Wednesday night at exactly 6.30 p.m., they would get picked up in front of their house to head to church. On this Wednesday night, again May 5th, 1993, at 6.30, Jamie and Brandy walked outside to get into the car, and both saw Stevie, Michael, and Christopher dart out from between their house and the house to the west. They were coming from the backyard out onto the street. Brandy, who happens to be really good friends with Christopher's brother Ryan, knew that his dad had been looking for him and yells to Christopher that Ryan says he needs to go home. Neither Christopher or the other two boys were willing to stop or even slow down to hear this. Christopher defiantly yelled back to Jamie, I don't have to listen to you, and the boys sped off down the street like they were on a mission. At this same time, Stevie's stepfather, Terry Hobbs, stepped out into the driveway and yelled at the boys. According to Jamie, Stevie's stepdad, Terry, yelled, You boys get back down here. The three boys had the same reaction to Terry Hobbs as they did to Jamie Clark Ballard. They ignored his order to return home and sped off down the street. All the while, Terry's yelling at them to get back down there. About 15 minutes later, 18-year-old Jeff Martins saw all three boys headed towards Robin Hood Woods. The 
last credible sighting, Stevie Branch, Christopher Byers, and Michael Moore, was that same evening at 7 o'clock, less than an hour before sunset. By that time, the temperature had dropped into the low 60s, and the full moon was beginning to peak up over the horizon. Chris Wall, 19 years old, was attending night school. He says that his night school classes got out between 6.45 and 7 p.m. His dad picked him up at night school, and he was on his way home when he saw Christopher on the back of Stevie Branch's bike. He knows both the boys. They said they were riding on Stevie's bike, quickly headed north on Macaulay Street, just adjacent to the Mayfair Apartments, and headed directly for the part of the Robin Hood Hills woods, where there was a pipe bridge that crossed the bayou into another small section of woods known to the locals as Turtle Hill. On the afternoon of May 5, 1993, the police reports indicate that there was a total of 35 sightings of the boys. Some were deemed credible, some were not. But even amongst the dozens of reports, we're still left with two glaring questions. Where was Christopher Byers between 2.55 p.m. when school let out and 4 p.m. when he showed up at Stevie Branch's house? And secondly, where were Stevie Branch and Michael Moore between the hours of 4 p.m. and 5.30 p.m.? It seems almost inconceivable that the two boys could have been riding around the neighborhood on their bikes during this 90-minute period, and no one would have seen them. A critical piece to not only this investigation, but any investigation, is victimology. It's critically important to know who the victims were, what their personalities were like, what their home life was like, and what they were doing in the final hours leading up to their death in order to accurately assess their risk. I believe that as we begin our journey reinvestigating this case, that there is someone out there that has the answers to these two questions. Many of you listening right now are new to the show. Before we conclude this season premiere episode, let me explain to you how this process works. Each week, as we present our findings of certain elements of the case, we're going to ask all of you, the listeners, for help. In this case, what we need help with is spreading the word to try to find new witnesses. I would encourage all of you to go to the Truth and Justice with Bob Ruff Facebook page 
and look for the post pinned to the top of the page that contains a call to action from anyone who lived in the West Memphis area in 1993 to share the post with anyone they know to try to find the someone who knows something. New episodes of Truth and Justice will be released every Sunday morning at 6 a.m. Eastern Time. And each of these episodes will be followed up with what we call our follow-up episodes every Friday morning at 6 a.m. Eastern Time. The follow-up episodes are recorded on Wednesdays. We encourage everyone listening to engage in these follow-up episodes. We ask that you send us your thoughts, your theories, your questions, and your comments, either through our email, Facebook, Twitter, or through our voicemail tip line before Wednesday of this week. All of that contact information will be given in the closing credits. As we move on together with this journey, I ask that we never lose sight of the fact that our primary mission is truth and justice, and specifically to finally, after 24 years, shine a light under the forgotten West Memphis Three. Stevie, Christopher, and Michael. Truth and Justice is a production of NBI Studios. Executive producer is Mike Bussing. Our sound engineer is Shane Yoder. All music for the show was created, composed, and scored by PutThemInASong.com, who also mixed and mastered this episode. I also want to thank Shane Yoder for designing and creating our Season 5 logo. Children's voices were performed by Quentin Ruff and Jacob Koontz. Thank you to our transcription team, Sarah Mueller, Anna Dindorf, Britta Bliss, and Stephanie McConnell. Thank you to Chris Brinkley and Katie Ross for all their hard work in getting our website, Truth and Justice Pod, up to date. And I also want to thank every single one of you for not only listening, but engaging in our mission of solving this case. Send in your thoughts, theories, ideas, and questions at any time to our email address, theories at truthandjusticepod.com. You can also comment or send us a message on our Facebook page, Truth and Justice with Bob Ruff, or follow us on Twitter at truthjusticepod. If you have any information about the case, a question, a comment, or a theory, you can always leave us a voicemail at our voicemail tip line, 269-224-2833. It's 269-224-2833. And please keep in mind that any of the voicemails left on the tip line, unless you specifically state otherwise, can and may be used in our Friday follow-up episodes. However you do it, stay engaged, stay in touch. But as for now, I'm signing off. I'm Bob Ruff, and this has been Truth and Justice.